Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the Met, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Now, enjoy the message. this weekend we began a brand new series called Better. And I don't know about you, I'm ready for some better days. I'm ready for some better times. I'm ready for some better news, right? And when I look into the Bible, I see God has promised better things. That's what the book of Hebrews is really about. And when you really think about your life and you compare it to those who live before us, and particularly those in the Bible, you find that the problems you and I are facing today are, are not unlike or unusual or unique to anything that other people have not experienced. When you go through something and you start talking to other people about what you're going through, it's interesting how you'll find everybody's going through something or everyone has gone through something. So the problems you and I face today are really not that uh, unique. I mean, there's always been political unrest. There's always been economic distress. There's always been physical duress. There's always been societal distress. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing new. You just study history, particularly you look in the Bible, and just as what we're going through is not unique to us, it's certainly not unique to look in the Bible and see that the people who responded to those things responded very similar to us. I mean, what you'll find about problems, if you haven't already discovered it, is problems will either draw you closer to God or drive you away from God. I see it all the time. People who have walked away from church typically have a story. You know, I was going through a period of time. It wasn't what I thought it would be. God didn't answer the prayer the way I prayed. God didn't do what I thought he would do. I had all the boxes checked. I had my life ordered. I had everything lined out, and the wheels of my life came off. The bottom of my life fell out, and it just doesn't pay. It just doesn't work. My faith just has failed me. I talk to people like that all the time. I talked to people who uh, not only have gone through experiences in life that were hurtful that drove them out of the church, I've talked to people who got hurt in church. I tell you all the time, if you never got hurt in church, you just didn't go long enough. Hang in there, baby. Somebody will run you down to the glory of God. We've all got a story. We all walk with a church limp. We all have those, t- those times. It just happens. People in church are just as imperfect as people out of church. The best anyone will ever be are sinners saved by grace. I'm not excusing it. I'm just understanding it. It is what it is. And I'm just saying that when people go through adversity and people go through problems, it has an effect on you. And how you respond largely depends on the outcome. Uh, One of the things adversity will do, it will reveal things about you. You and I really don't know how strong our faith is till it's tested. We really don't. We're in a very uh, protected environment in here. Uh, We call this a big old holy huddle. And we're in this room right now, and it's easy to worship, and it's easy to give God praise. It's easy to pray. It's easy to listen to his word because we're in this environment here for about an hour, and it's easy to do that. The challenge comes is when we break out of the holy huddle and we go back into the real world and our lives resume, and now all of a sudden the challenges of our faith get real. And it does get real. And I'm just convinced this morning that adversity or trouble doesn't make us who we are. It reveals to us who we are. You ever see someone and they seem to be so nice and kind till they got successful? (laughs) 
And you said, man, that was a really nice girl, and he was a really nice guy till he got money, and now he's just a jerk. You know anybody like that? Well, you know what I believe? I believe they were a poor jerk before they became a rich jerk. They were always a jerk. Just when they didn't have any money, they didn't have any options. And now they have a little money and they have some success under their belt. Now they have a little more options to be who they've been all along. So adversity doesn't make you who you are. It reveals to you who you are. That's why tests are important, and God sends us through tests, not so that he will know us, so that we will know us. I can't fix what I don't know is broken. I can't change areas of my life that I'm unaware of. So God will send the adversity to show me the level of my faith, to show me the depth of my character, to show me areas in my integrity that need to be improved. So these times of adversity are essential. And equally essential is the response that we take to the times that we go through, either drawing closer to God or being driven farther from God. Now, when the writer of Hebrews was writing, he was writing to people who were forsaking their faith, recanting their faith, forsaking their church. They just said, this doesn't work, I'm out. And many of them were religious Jews who were going back to the traditions of their faith. They were returning to the synagogue. They were returning to the sacrificial system. And they thought, well, you know, it's not real life giving, but at least it's familiar. And when you go through hard times, sometimes the temptation is to go back to the familiar, back to the well-worn path, because the familiar doesn't require faith. Faith is unknown. Faith is unseen. Faith is uncertain. Faith is uncomfortable sometimes. And so when a person goes through a time of adversity, sometimes they trend back toward the familiar because at least on the well-worn path, they know what to expect. Remember the old saying, if you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've always gotten. (laughs) And sometimes that well-worn path is familiar, and it draws us in that direction, and that was what was happening. They were leaving this vibrant, new, life-giving organization and organism called the church. And they were going back into that dead system that God had moved away from, and they were going back there. You see, religion always looks at where it last saw God. Religion always looks back at where it last saw God. You remember when Mary, who came to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning, not knowing Jesus had risen from the dead? Why did she return to the tomb? She went back to the place where she last saw God. And the angel said, he's not here. He's risen. He's moved on. He's not where he was. God is doing a new thing. But what happens when the trouble hits your life is you tend to go back to the well-worn past, to the familiar that requires no faith. And that was what was happening. You see, the sacrificial system was still in place at the time Hebrews was written. Many scholars believe Hebrews was written around 64 AD. And in 70 AD or thereabouts, you had a Titus Vespasian who invades Jerusalem and he tears down the temple. But up until that point when this was written, the temple was still vibrant. Uh, They were still sacrificing as they always had done. They were not realizing that Jesus, the Lamb of God, had paid the sacrifice to end all the sacrifices, but they were still caught in the old religious system. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing, you know what the theme of the book is? (laughs) It's better. He's saying there's something better. This new relationship with Jesus is better. This new thing called the church is better It's better than the prophets, and it's better than the patriarchs, and it's better than the temple, and it's better than the tabernacle. It's better than the old covenant. It's a a better way. And some 13 times in the book of Hebrews, he talks about better things. 
And I love how he opens the book and he talks about the fact that we have a better Savior. He talks about the fact Jesus is better. And let me just stop long enough to say Jesus is better than anyone you'll ever meet in your life. He's better than anything you could ever experience in your life. Jesus is better. And so the writer of Hebrews just opens with his idea that Jesus is better, and he's challenging them to recognize the effect that this adversity is having on them, that it's driving them away from Jesus instead of closer to him. You know, adversity will separate possessors of faith from professors of faith. Someone can profess something they don't possess. For example, the Bible says concerning the devil, and uh, I think it's in James 1, no, James 2, where the Bible says, get this, the devil believes and trembles. Did you know the devil believes in God? Uh, it, it is a profession. He, he'll profess that he believes in God without a possession of that saving faith. But he will profess the fact, I believe, and not only that, the Bible says he trembles. He's got enough sense to fear God. The devil has more sense than a lot of people who may know there's a God, but they don't fear him. They don't revere him. Well, James says, man, the devil believes and he trembles. Listen, the devil is into religion up to his ears. Remember what he warns of in Ephesians 6 when he says, put on the whole armor of God. Remember what he said? Watch out for spiritual wickedness in high places. Did you know spirituality can be wicked? Did you know that the devil traffics in religion? He has a belief system. He believes in God. By the way, when you read the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the devil quoted scripture back to God. I quoted out of context, but he quoted it back to, he knows the Bible. That's why the first thing he did in, in Eve's mind in Genesis 3 was to put a question mark where God had placed an exclamation point. Did God say that? Are you sure that's what the, and she was, you know, she didn't know, she didn't know his word. And people who know his word don't get drawn into that temptation. That's why we encourage you to anchor yourself in God's word. Study his word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. What will keep you anchored in your faith is your understanding of his word. So the devil knows God's word. He's a, he's a professor of a faith that he doesn't possess. So, so string, think about with me now. The devil is into religion, spiritual wickedness. He can quote scripture. Uh, the devil believes in God and trembles. Another thing, Job 1, verse 6, did you know the devil goes to church? I don't look around the room right now. I don't mean that. I'm just figuratively speaking. He goes to church. The Bible says the sons of men came to present themselves before God. And verse 6 says, and the devil went with them. You ever been in a church like that? <laughs> I've been in a church like that. I think I've identified some of the devils at that church like that. I'm just suggesting to your heart this morning that he goes to church. The devil knows worship. He understands religion, and he understands religious people. So our enemy is wise, and our enemy is effective, and I'm just suggesting to you it is possible to have a profession of faith that you do not possess. So the adversity was revealing those who really possess the faith that they professed. That's why you, from time to time you see, man, I don't know how that person could be a Christian and do what they just did. They may not be a Christian. You may be giving them too much credit. I mean, sometimes we, uh, we do what we do because we are what we are. And I'm suggesting to your heart this morning that once you have a true faith and you're anchored in your faith, when adversity comes, all it does is reveals to you the strength of the faith. 
And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, come back to Jesus. Come back to your faith. Get back in church. Reconnect. Listen, you've got a better Savior. So if you have a Bible, look with me just for a little while this morning. Look in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. And I, I love how it opens. He just opens it with the word God. God. He kind of starts where Genesis started. Genesis 1.1. You know, the Bible doesn't take any space to prove the existence of God. The existence of God is presupposed. The Bible opens in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. He just presupposes that everyone instinctively, intuitively knows there's a God. So the writer of the Hebrews is kind of opening the same way. He's a God. God who in various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Now, he's speaking of their forefathers. He's saying, how did God speak in times past? Well, he spoke through prophets. You open the Old Testament, right? Patriarchs. He spoke through signs and symbols and types. He would use sometimes nature that he would speak to his people through nature, thunder and lightning, sometimes the still small voice. There's a place, a man by the name of Naaman who got a word from the Lord through a donkey. Have you ever heard a preacher like that? <laughs> anyway, so the point is uh, uh, God would speak in various ways in times past. He would communicate, and it's always interesting to see that God always has leaders. He'll speak to the leader and through the leader to his people. You, you, you get that? I mean, think about Nehemiah. When Nehemiah got the word to go back to build uh, the wall of Jerusalem, God could have just broadcast spread that message to all the people and said, this is what I want you to do. They could have heard a voice from heaven. That's not how he did God spoke to Nehemiah, who took that word to the people. So that's an order. And here's what he's saying. In times past, you're very aware. Your forefathers and mothers heard the word of God that was given by the prophets. But note now, he has in these last days spoken to us now by his son. He's spoken to us by his son. And then he talks about Jesus. He's the brightness of his glory. By him, he's a, or rather, he's appointed heir of all things. He made the worlds, being the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. And when Jesus had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the writer of Hebrews opens the book talking about the superiority, the supremacy, the significance, the sufficiency of Jesus. And I would just point to three things that kind of jumped out at me. I want to leave them with you before we go. And I want to talk first of all about this idea that Jesus expounds the mind of God. Jesus expounds the mind of God. If you want to know what God is thinking, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God would do, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God's outlook or opinion is, look at Jesus. If you want to understand the mind of God, you study the life of Jesus. Notice what he said. He said, God in various times, various ways, he spoke. God's in the business of speaking. But in these last days, he said, God has now spoken to us by his son. God speaks through Jesus. Listen, he's his first word, his first word. John 1, in the beginning, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. What is a word anyway? It is the expression of a thought. If you want to know what's in someone's mind, listen to their words. 
That's why you should think before you speak, because what you speak will reveal what you think. <laughs> That's why sometimes we just shouldn't say anything. I'm going to say nothing, nada. And that's why when we say nothing, we're not thinking anything either. This is particularly true of us men. Wouldn't you agree with that, ladies? Have you ever looked at your husband or your boyfriend, your significant other ladies, and you just said, what's on your mind? And he looked back at you and said, nothing. I know you don't understand that, ladies, but can I help you with something? When he says that to you, believe him. There ain't nothing going on right then. Isn't that a wonderful gift we have, men? We absolutely can disengage. I'm chasing a rabbit, I know. But we can disengage, and we can think of nothing. I can sit out back and look at those horses and those longhorns, and my mind is going, <laughs> nothing. So don't get mad at them. Don't get frustrated, because when they tell you they ain't thinking of nothing, they ain't thinking of nothing. And you women don't understand that, because you can't stop thinking about stuff. You think about stuff when you're sleeping. You wake up thinking about stuff. You get up in the morning thinking about stuff. Somebody's got to be thinking about these stuff, so it might as well be me. I'm thinking about stuff. So when you say, honey, what you're thinking about, he says nothing. You don't believe him, but I'm saying you can believe him. The thoughts are the, uh, uh, the words are the expression of the thoughts. And so Jesus was God's first word. He was God's word. He was his first word. Listen, he's his focused word. D don't get any revelation outside of Jesus. If what you're hearing doesn't square with what God has said in his word, doubt what you're hearing and trust his word. He's God's focus word. By the way, not only is he God's first word and he's God's focus word, get this, he's God's full word. Everything you need to know you can find in God's word. Now, not everything you want to know. There are a lot of mysteries that I don't know about. I've told you before, there are questions that I have that I won't get answered until my mind is perfected in the presence of my Savior in heaven one day. So up until then, I have to rely on the fact that, no, everything I want to know is not in the Bible, but everything I need to know, he included it in the Bible. In fact, read the last verse of John in the Gospel of John, and he said, if we were to write all the things that Jesus said and did, he had done, he said, there's not libraries that could contain the volumes of books that could be written about all that he said and he did. So what's the point? The point is God contained within the word of God. He contained everything you and I need to know. So he's his first word. He's his focused word. He's his full word. By the way, he's his final word. When Jesus says, that's it, it's it. <laughs> Jesus says, don't do it, don't do that. Jesus said, that's okay, you're good to go. So I'm just suggesting you be sensitive because Jesus is expressing the mind of God. He's expressing the thoughts of God. Jesus said in John 14, 19, if you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen my Father. So God is speaking. In fact, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says God speaks through creation. Did you know nature testifies of God? You go to the mountains and you see the beauty of the mountains. You go to the ocean, see the beauty of the oceans. Go to the lake, walk around your neighborhood. Look in your flower beds. Look at all the created beautiful things God has created. And he says in that verse, that all speaks of him. Creation speaks of God. By the way, read on. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, the Bible says, your conscience will tell you there's a God. He said, I have my law written on their hearts. That's why I said earlier, you instinctively and intuitively know there's a God. Uh, your child will just naturally grow up believing there's a God. They'll have to go off to college to be educated against that thought. 
Because the thought I'm suggesting to you this morning is that we intuitively, instinctively have the law of God written on our heart. It is, it is a, a, an element of his uh, knowledge that is within our hearts. It's not salvific in the sense that you become a Christian by um, uh, fanning the flame, if you will, and then you become a Christian eventually by a process like evolution. You evolve into being a Christian. That's not what is being taught there. Listen, salvation is not a process by evolution. Salvation is a revolution. If anyone be in Christ, they're a new creature. (laughs) Old has passed away. All has become new. So what is it teaching then? It's not teaching a spark of divinity. It's teaching a knowledge of the creator. You study any people group anywhere in the world, no matter how primitive they are, and they'll have some form of worship. They may worship an animal. They may worship an image, an object. They worship. So where did they get that idea? Where did they get the idea to worship? It is the law of God written on their heart. It's John 1. He is, he's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Here's how I think about that. I think if a person is true to the light God has given them, he will give them increased light to the point that he'll wreck a plane and drop a missionary right on top of them. So it's this idea that God is talking to us through our our conscience. He's talking to us through creation. By the way, when you read Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he's also talking to us through circumstances. (laughs) COVID-19, loss of a job, a turn in the economy, stress in the relationship. What's God saying? What's he telling me? What's God want me to learn from this experience? What is this revealing about me and my faith? What can I learn from this? God is speaking. He's not a passive, he's active. So he speaks through creation, he speaks through conscience, he speaks through circumstances. By the way, he speaks through the canon of this scripture. God speaks to his word. In fact, when you read 2 Peter 1, 19, he says there's no more sure word of prophecy than we have in this thing called his word, his Bible. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the significance of the word, I cannot, I cannot overstate the significance. My job as a pastor and the job of all of our teachers and pastors in our church is not to stand on top of the word or in front of the word. Our job is to stand behind the word and under the word. In other words, we're supposed to teach you this is what God's word says. It's up to you to act on it. It's not my job really to straighten anybody out. <laughs> my dad now, he used to do a good job of that. He was that old school hell, fire, damnation preacher. I mean, I listen to some of his messages, and I want to get saved all over again. It just scares me to death. I got some of his old preaching Bibles up in my office, and those th- things are smoking like nuclear reactors. Got those old messages in there, right? You see, the way I've come to understand it, my job as a fisher of man, I catch them, he cleans them. <laughs> he knows where the dirt is. I don't. So my job is just to reach as many people as I can reach. The life change happens when they place their faith in Jesus and they partner with him, I just want to be true to teach them what God's word has to say. Does that make sense? So when you study Jesus and you understand how important and significant he is, he expounds the mind of God hurriedly. Secondly, Jesus also executes the will of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was preoccupied with doing the will of the Father. And you know what the primary will of God is? He was calling the world to himself. 1 Peter 1.9, God is not willing, or 2 Peter 1.9, God is not willing that any should perish. Any, didn't say many. He said he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
It is the will of God for every single solitary soul on the face of the planet to have a personal relationship with Jesus, to be elected, if you will, into the family of God. I've never believed, nor do I believe this morning, that God ever looks down from heaven and says, any, many, miny, mo, that one goes to heaven, to hell that one goes. God desires everyone to know him. That's why he said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it's the will of God that every single solitary person know Jesus. And the Bible here says, look in verse 2, he appointed Jesus now as heir of all things. He said, my son is going to be heir of all things. So you say, well, what is the will of the Father? It's everyone should know him. The will of the Father is that this world will come to Jesus. He will be the heir of all things. You say, what's the world coming to? It's coming to Jesus. <laughs> Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's why I tell you, you don't have a need this morning that he can't meet. You say, well, you don't know about my finances, and you don't know about my job. You don't know. You're talking to, to the God of heaven when you pray who has the ability to meet every need you have. I mean, the psalmist said he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God said the silver is mine, the gold is mine, the earth is the Lord's. What do you need? You don't ask God of anything he doesn't have the ability to handle. He can meet that need. God said, it's my will. My son is going to be the heir of all things. Notice the second thing he says, not only the heir of all things, but through him, the Bible says, he also made the world. Jesus is the heir of everything. By the way, he's the creator of everything. Listen, I don't have any problem accepting the Genesis account of creation. I just summarize it this way. I believe one day God stepped from nowhere because there wasn't anywhere for him to be. He stood on nothing because there was nothing for him to stand on. He spoke everything into existence because nothing was here till he called it into existence, and it all stays there because he tells it to. And that's what I believe. <laughs> He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. Notice it now. He exists to bring God glory and reveal that glory to all things. Look at that. Who being the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person. Jesus radiated and reflected beautifully the glory of God while he was on the earth. Again, that's when the apostle says, show us the Father. And Jesus said again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, his radiant glory on the earth. And by the way, he says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the sustainer of all things. Heir of all things, creator of all things, reflecting glory from God to all things, the sustainer of all things. By the way, upholding this world is uh, active, not passive. Um. In other words, God is not a distant deity. He's very active in the events of the world. That's why I tell people all the time, uh, th this pandemic didn't catch God by surprise. He's not some distant deity that got shocked by what we're going through. He didn't suddenly look down out of heaven and go, oh, there's a pandemic down there. Oh, my God, oh, or oh, me, what are we going to do? I mean, I don't know what are we going to do about that. Everything's happening according to a divine plan. It's orchestrated beautifully by a sovereign God. Nothing catches him by surprise. I said, this too shall pass. It may pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. We're going to get on the other side of it. But the point I want you to hear me say to your heart this morning is God is upholding this thing. Remember the old song, he's got the whole world in his hand? He does. It didn't say he's maintaining the world. He's saying he's sustaining the world. It's going because he says for it to. Uh, by the way, I'm here because God said for me to be here. You're, you, God doesn't have to take a life. He just has to stop giving life. 
Paul said, in him, we live and we move and we have our being. So we have life because he gives us life. He doesn't take it, he gives life. And we'll have it as long as that happens. So I'm saying God is holding this thing together. Guys, never forget the fact Jesus exists to execute the will of his Father. Here's the last thought. Thirdly, Jesus expresses the love of God. You want to see God's love? Look at Jesus. In fact, the Bible talks about in John uh, chapter 15 and verse 13, greater love hath no one than this, than one would lay down his life for his friends. Now, I know that's a beautiful verse that we relate to our military and, and our first responders, and that's very appropriate to do that. But actually, the verse is speaking of Jesus. The interpretation of the verse is simply saying that there's not a greater demonstration of God's love than for Jesus to be willing to go to the cross to bring a world that was lost back into a relationship with his Father. And Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, beautifully expresses the greatest example of love known to man, that one would be willing to lay down their life for someone that they love. Notice how he drives to the cross as we close. He said in verse 3, Jesus, he had by himself purged our sins. Please don't miss that. Jesus had by himself purged. It's not Jesus in good works. It's not Jesus in baptism. It's not Jesus in some charitable deed. It is not Jesus if the good outweighs the bad at the end of life. It's not Jesus plus the denomination you're a part of, not Jesus plus the religion you embrace, not Jesus plus a ritual. It's not Jesus plus anything. He by himself, you get the wording? He by himself purged our sins. That's why he said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. What is grace? The unmerited favor of God. I didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Is God being good to us in spite of us, loving us while we were still in our sin? Uh, Romans 5, 8, uh, the Bible doesn't say Christianity is behavior modification, as I've said. In fact, he doesn't love us so that he can, or he doesn't change us so that he can love us. He loves us so he can change us. Sometimes we get that all turned around. He by himself, you realize he is our solitary Savior. He is our supreme Savior. Jesus by himself brought about salvation. No wonder the hymn writer wrote, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's not works. He said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's grace through faith, not of works. You know why? He said, lest any of you should boast. God said, I'm not gonna let you in heaven. You strut around here bragging about what you did to get here. <laughs> very loosely translated. But that's basically it. If we could work our way into heaven, we really would. We'd walk around going, uh-huh, yeah. You see the life I live down there? Look what that got me up here. Uh-huh. Yeah, you had to rely on Jesus. I got here on my own. That's called boasting. The Bible says no, no flesh will be exalted in his sight. Sad to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. So God said, we ain't doing that. It's grace through faith and that alone. It's Jesus plus, Jesus minus. That's why we drive hard to the hoop every weekend and tell you, you need to know Jesus. And so he said, he by himself. Notice it now, when he did that, when he purged our sins, notice the next thing he did. He sat down at the majesty on high. Now, all the Jews of that day, the religious Jews would have understood the significance of what he said. Because we're not religious Jews living in that day, let me explain it. 
You see, the tabernacle was still in existence. The sacrificial system was still going on. So they were, those religious Jews would have understood all the furniture that you'd find in the tabernacle. The table of showbread, the lamp stands, the brazen labor. They would have understood all the articles that were in the tabernacle. You know what piece of furniture was not in the tabernacle? There was no chair. There's no chair for the priest. You know why? The priest's work was never done. Every year that priest would receive the sacrifices of those animals without spot or blemish because those animals were representing Jesus who one day would come as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And he then would sacrifice those animals and what would happen metaphorically is those sins would be rolled forward one more year. But his work was never done. It had to be done again. That next year, you'd have to come in, and you'd have to offer the sacrifice. You'd have to come back in, and you'd have to go through the process. And the priest would go through the process because all of it was types and symbols, and all of it was pointing to the Savior. It was the gospel being taught to those Old Testament people over into the New Testament. They were understanding the Messiah one day would come. And sure enough, John's baptizing on the banks of the Jordan and looks up and says, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Here comes the sacrifice that's going to end all sacrifices. And guess what happens? When Jesus died on the cross, all the sins that those Old Testament priests had atoned for, all those sins were rolled on Jesus, and he became God's sacrifice. And when atonement for our sin was made at the cross and the justice of God was satisfied on sin, Jesus said, it's done. Nothing left to be done. It's done. It's a gift. All you do is receive a gift. It's done. And he said, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know where he is today? Jesus is living in my heart. I pray he's living in yours. He's in the life of his church. He's upholding the world by his hands, but he's setting at the right hand of the Father. And you know what the Bible says he's doing? It says he ever lives to make intercession for us. You know what that means? That means when you and I go to him in prayer and we're going through a hard time in life and it's revealing the level of faith that we have and we're struggling and we're tempted to walk away from the church and we're struggling with whether do I allow this to drive me closer to God or drive, drive me away. Our hearts are so overwhelmed and our hearts are so burdened. He intercedes for us. That just means he looks to his father and says they're going through something. We need to help them. Let's lift this burden from them. Let's, let's help them with the struggles of their life. To intercede means to go before and to go in between. And the son makes intercession to the father on our behalf. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And then the third thing he said, he said he's given him a name, exalted above the angels. The angels are magnificent. The angels are powerful. The angels have wonderful names. But the Bible says when Jesus paid the price of sin, God gave him a name that was exalted above the names of angels. Never think of Jesus as an angel. He's a son. He's not an angel. In Mormonism, they think of him as an angel. Uh, Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus is an angel, but he's not. He's a son. When Jesus was baptized, the voice of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is the son of God, and as his son, he's been given a name that's exalted. Acts 4.12 said, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than that name, and the name is Jesus. Friend, if you don't know him, I highly recommend him. If you run anywhere when you go through a hard time, run to Jesus. And you may fall. You can fall on the rock, but you won't fall off of it. You can fall anywhere, fall at his feet. He loves you. He can't fail you. He won't fail you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. 
that never returns void, that always accomplishes, as Isaiah said, the purpose for which it was sent. And as we've opened this book of Hebrews and we began our study on better things, we've come to terms with the fact you're a better Savior. We, we don't have a better Savior than you. We'll never know anyone better in our lives, ever, who knows us more, who loves us more, who has done more for us than you. So, Father, I pray for my friends who are watching and maybe in this room who've never trusted you, that this might be that moment where they swallow their pride and humble their heart and just say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin and be my Savior today. And Lord, we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.